The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Welcome, everyone. My name is Tobias Matei. I'm the deputy editor of uh, the North American Spine Society Journal. I had the pleasure of having with me today uh, Dr. Uh, Julie Cream, who's the author of uh, an article recently published in the NASJ entitled Thoracic and Lumbar Spine Trauma Classification Systems Fail to Predict Post-Traumatic Aphotic Deformity. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Cream. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, would you like to start maybe introducing uh, your practice, academic affiliation, uh, fields of interest, and uh, maybe w- how you ended up uh, focused on this research on the classification system for thoracolumbar fractures? So I am a musculoskeletal radiologist. I've been at the University of Missouri for almost 10 years. Before that, I was at University of Utah for about 15 years. So I practice all musculoskeletal, including spine, about 30% of my practice is spine, CT, MR, and intervention. So it's always been a big interest of mine. Um, I started getting interested in problems of classification when we had a faculty member join us at Utah who'd been involved with the TLIX development. And he uh, encouraged us all to use the TLIX system. And so we started doing so, uh, so. And as I started to do it, I started to realize that there were problems both in inter-observer consistency and then uh, in validation of the system, uh, that the system had been inaugurated without actually outcomes analysis and, and validation in that way. So I'd always had as the back of my mind doing a study on it. And then one of my residents who is also on the paper said, you know, if you want to do that, Dr. Krim, I'd be interested in doing it. So how do we do that? How do we take a really big problem, make it manageable? And we realized as radiologists, we pretty much had to do it as a retrospective study, which at the beginning is is a limitation, of course. Um, But my first goal was to say, okay, what can we is provide good outcomes analysis for TLEX? And at first I was just focusing on that. And maybe because radiologists are used to evaluating ligament tears and they didn't really put in TLEX exactly what they were doing uh, for, the, uh, for the assessment of partial versus complete, maybe we'd be better, who knows? Um, so we set out and we uh, ran a list of all the trauma patients that had come through over a, a considerable period where we had good MRs. Um, and then how many of them had a fracture documented on MR and then had follow-up films. Um, and of course, excluding ones that had tumor or had infection. Um, and then uh, looking at those issues. So my three main issues to say, well, how do I evaluate a classification system? Are, is it unambiguous? Uh, is it easy enough to use in clinical practice? Um, is there good inter-observer and intra-observer consistency? Um, and can that classification system be used to predict outcomes and to guide treatment? So, um, and I understand your article focus uh, exclusively on the last point, which is the capacity of the classifications to predict outcomes. And I understand that probably as a radiologist, um, it was somewhat natural to focus on, on a specific radiological outcome, uh, which is the kyphotic deformity. So would you uh, let us know uh, what were the results of your analysis in terms of the capacity of the currently available classification systems to predict kyphotic deformity? 
Before I get there, we did also look at inter-observer variability, and we discovered that we were no better than uh, the uh, orthopedic and spine surgeons, um, and that had actually been published in the interim since I first started looking at it. So that was just corroborative. So we made it a minor point. But really, we had very poor inter-observer consistency using the TLIX system specifically. Um, uh, and that was usually the one that, that, that had been used in the reports. So what we found was that none of the classification systems really were adequate to predict the development of kyphotic deformity. Um, and um, that there were several other factors that we've found that were important, including, you know, was it multiple levels? If you look at some papers, they only looked at patients that had a single level. Well, that's cleaner and easier to analyze, but we have a lot of patients who have uh, two or three levels involved or even four. Um, and then we also found that the anterior longitudinal ligament, uh, even in uh, injuries that were not hyperextension injuries, uh, was important in outcomes. So I find the topic of classification system for thoracic lumbar fractures fascinating, uh, not only because of the historical development, but this is a very practical issue that in the level one trauma center, I deal with it all the time. And I can tell that I, I try to teach my residents some general principles um, and, and how to use those classifications. But I remember during my training, I was first presented with the AO classification, the initial 1994 classification by Mager. And at that point, it was very reasonable. Uh, I was trying to memorize all the subdivisions, say, okay, uh, anterior column disruption, so that's a type A, uh, type B is an extension injury, and type C, it's a, um, it's a translocation, okay? So type B, uh, and then you start dividing in type B, B1, B221, and then at the end of the day, I have those 30 categories and say, okay, so what do I do? I mean, what is the difference between a type B221 and a B21? And they said, I don't know. I mean, this is a purely morphological classification system. And that was somewhat frustrating because even though I learned a lot with the general concepts of that compression, an interior column injury, a flexion injury is very different than a distraction injury uh, or a translocation, a rotational injury, it didn't give us that that much help in terms of the decision-making. So I was very excited when I first saw the TLIX classification because it finally, I mean, it seemed relatively simple. You sum the numbers for morphology, the PLC, the posterior uh, longitudinal uh, ligamentous complex and neurological status, and finally it tells you operative, non-operative, or the borderline. Uh, but when we start using that, and um, you probably saw one of the papers that we initially published is that I mean, there's some caveats, special, and I was very interested in the burst fractures because most of the burst fractures that I see in my practice, they tend to be either a T-Lix 2, which is a simple burst in a neurologically intact patient, or a 2 with a questionable nerve injury, which is a 4. So a 4 um, already uh, falls in the category of surgeon's choice, but we have a significant proportion of patients in the, the burst fractures, neurologically intact, that if you treat them conservatively, you're going to get in trouble. And by getting in trouble, I mean there will be a meaningful kyphotic deformity that will require a massive uh, circumferential fusion that could have been avoided. And that's how we kind of define that the burst, the comminuted burst fracture was the Achilles tendon of the T-Leaks classification. Um, 
And I'm very interested in, in those patients because in my practice, there's some patients, especially in the young population, that I propose something like a kyphoplasty, which is a relatively small procedure, but it restored the integrity of the anterior column. Um, and I still don't have large numbers to prove that that reduces the incidence of the kyphotic deformity. But I think that's mainly what I'm, in my practice, uh, I'm very interested in. Because I can tell you, figure two, for example, you show a superior end plate fracture that developed, it had a 90 degree of kyphosis, and it went to a 16 degree in the post-op imaging. I think that's the standard. That's the rule and not the exception um, in, in my practice. Uh, and one of the questions I would like to, uh, to, to ask you, because basically your conclusion is that none of the currently available classification systems are good to predict kyphotic deformity. Is that kind of correct? Yes, that's correct. I also was very excited about AO at first. And granular is not the same thing as useful. And then also, even they sort of had to throw up their hands and say, well, if it's B, all A's count the same. It's B plus any A. Well, maybe it, they needed to be more granular, or maybe they needed to admit that the classification system can't be flexible enough to deal with the reality you're seeing in your surgical practice. Let's give due credit. I mean, they, the AO changed the classification and now it's much more manageable uh, with only A, B, and C and then subdivided and then some modifiers for comorbidities and neurological. But one of the things that I, that I find that um, it, it may be the case that these classifications fail to predict kyphotic deformity because they were not designed to predict kyphotic deformity. And I tell that because, for example, the T-leaks classification, I found it very weird in some sense that it included neurological status as one of the categories. Because for me as a surgeon, I mean, I look at the morphology of the fracture and then, yes, I'm worried about kyphotic deformity or instability. And the neurological status is something completely apart. And I tell my residents, if a patient has a new neurological injury and you have a bony fragment or even a lamina fracture, something that is not unstable and it's pushing on the nerve root, that's a surgical patient. I mean, that's a completely different indication. I mean, you're either operating because of instability or you're operating because of an acute neurological injury. So I can see how the T-leaks kind of mix both. Um, and the AO classification, the new AO, it seems that is designed to predict long-term outcomes, and that's why I included uh, those modifiers for comorbidities. But I wonder, and I would like to have your opinion on that, whether the fact that they were not designed to predict kyphotic deformity, maybe that's why they ultimately failed to do that. Well, if you look at these, all of the systems, they don't really have what are their outcomes measures. Are we going to do it based on pain? Well, that, that's a very difficult outcomes measure. Are they going to do it to return to function? There's, there's very little out there. So it's not just for kyphosis. The reason I picked kyphosis was that that was the easiest for me to get from the chart. And uh, I figured it was sort of an, an index thing to show. I think we've failed altogether to look at outcomes uh, for spine factors. So it's not just kyphosis. That was just the one that was easiest for me to study. So when I looked at the patient's EMR, you know, uh, data on pain, data on function, data on compliance with bracing, um, it was very spotty and very inconsistent. So, you know, in the ideal world, if I were going to try to do this well, I would do it as a prospective study and I would have somebody following the patients around and seeing, did they get back to their level of activity and so forth? And we're doing that with joints. I haven't seen that done with spine. There may be some people that are doing that with spine factors, uh, but I have not encountered it.
And even though uh, the uh, the postoperative kyphosis it's a, a single variable, I think it's a very meaningful variable. And even though someone may not be able to show, for example, that a 10 degree of kyphosis uh, in a large population would lead to different outcomes than the 20 degree, I mean, we know that naturally that affects the the sagittal balance most of these patients tend to be have some degree of osteoporosis maybe previous fracture uh, we know sagittal balance it's it's associated with long-term uh, clinical uh, outcomes uh, before or after deformity surgery so i do think that it, it's a very meaningful valuable a, a meaningful variable and if our current system failed to predict that uh, i agree with you that that we we do have a problem um, regarding that. Yes. I love the idea of doing some augmentation on the young patients to see if that works. Um, because, of course, in elderly patients, augmentation is a problem because you get the adjacent segment fractures. But if we took a young, healthy patient and looked at outcomes with, with doing that vertebral augmentation, I think that's ex an exciting idea. So let's focus a little bit on, on this burst fracture, uh, the comminuted burst fractures uh, in neurologically intact patients, because I think that's the population that, as you mentioned, we may be able to do a relatively simple intervention um, and avoid in a significant number of patients uh, kyphotic deformity that will have long term deleterious outcomes. And as I mentioned, in my practice, sometimes I see traumatic. Um, uh, fractures, so non-osteoporotic fractures in young patients that I know they're very active. They don't have uh, femoral fractures or other fractures. So I know they will be up and walking and back to their regular activities very soon. And the MRI shows diffuse stir changes in the whole vertebral body. And on top of that, I look at the CT scan and I see a meaningful degree of comminution. That's the type of population that, I mean, the difference between doing just conservative treatment with or without a brace and some sort of, of intervention uh, may be game-changing. And, and I see one of the things that I think you're, um, because you're not able to demonstrate in your article that the degree of comminution was predictive of kyphotic deformity. Uh, but I would like your thoughts on, when I first read it, I thought that one of the caveats, and there's nothing wrong with the study, is just inherent to the methodology, but it may explain why you were not able to demonstrate that the degree of comminution was associated with kyphotic deformity is that this is, I mean, this is basically a retrospective study uh, and the patients received the treatment which the surgeon thought was the most indicated for the patient. And I take, for example, uh, figure four that you present, which is a patient uh, with, uh, with a fracture and... Uh, actually, figure three, it's a patient with a, a burst fracture, um, some posterior uh, disruption of the posterior wall. There's also a lamina fracture, which even though not affecting the facet joint, uh, it in some sense, I mean, creates some, some disruption uh, of the, the integrity of the posterior bony elements. And I mean, this is the type of patient that if that's a young patient, I look at that and I think that patient would have a good chance of developing a kyphotic deformity. And that, that was the thought process of the surgeon and he indicated a fixation one level above and one below. So my fear with it, with just concluding that comminution is not associated uh, with kyphotic deformity is that perhaps in your cohort, those patients who had a meaningful degree of comminution and who in the surgeon's perception 
had a meaningful uh, chance of developing kyphotic deformity, they received surgery. So, I mean, I think a better conclusion, if I would summarize in terms of the comminuted degree of comminution, I would say for patients for whom the surgeon thought that they would not develop kyphosis and didn't indicate surgery, for those patients, the degree of comminution was not associated with kyphotic deformity. Because for the other patients, for those with meaningfully comminuted fractures and which really most surgeons would be scared, those patients receive surgery. So you you weren't able to demonstrate the development of the kyphotic deformity. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting it right, but I would like your thought process on that. I think that's a very valid criticism. And that's the problem with retrospective studies. But we did see quite a few patients that had had posterior fusion who developed kyphotic deformity despite that. Um, and, I, and those, when we took them as a group, it was a fairly small group, but it did not seem to be related to uh, the degree of comminution. So I think doing the posterior fusion um, it is plus minus on preventing uh, the development of kyphosis. And that's where other things come into play, such as that sprain of the anterior longitudinal ligament um, and the presence of, of multiple levels. Um, uh, it's interesting because we were always taught in the thoracic spine that the ribs and the sternum give us such good stability. We have routinely significant kyphotic deformities in our uh, thoracic axial load injuries. Um, and uh, there's a, a lot more factors at, at play than I think it's possible for a classification system to arrive at. So maybe what we need instead of a classification system is a warning bells. Like you just described a warning bell when you're looking at that uh, burst factor and seeing significant combination saying, this is one I'm more worried about. Um, and I'm going to perhaps, and you see that it's hard to do the augmentation because that might actually impede heating, might it? but it might need both the posterior fusion and a real compliance with bracing. So tell me a little bit about those patients that you mentioned that they were operated and you still observe a kyphotic deformity. Because in my mind as a surgeon, um, if I operate a patient and I don't have any pseudoartrosis, I personally cannot explain any kyphotic deformity at that level. But where did you do you think those patients developed the kyphotic deformity? Was it like further, further collapse of the fracture itself? Was it mainly related to the disc disruption or was there any correlation between that and maybe some lucency around the screws? Because for me, it's hard no, to explain how you no would have. Failure. Yeah, none of these had failure of the screws. That's a very good question. Um, but I think, you know, you're you're tethering the posterior, but the end here, can, it can still compress in, in spite of the posterior tether. And that to me was the most interesting thing. So we've learned in Telex to really emphasize that posterior tether, but the posterior tether by itself is not enough. So you can see how you can keep that and still just gradually lose height. So this stays the same, but this goes down and we get a, a kyphosis. So I think it's, it is related to the combination, although I didn't show that. I think it is related to the sprain of the anterior of the ligament, but it's, it's not a disc problem. I thought about that. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I, I always uh, teach my residents is that, I mean, it's not because you're going two levels above and two below on a burst fracture that that's the best strategy. I mean, there are several studies showing that 
if you were able to insert at least unilateral screws at the fracture level, you may be able to go one above and one below, and there was uh, there's no meaningful difference in the outcomes. But I always try to tell them, I mean, what is the goal of the surgery? Um, we have a strong posterior instrumentation, but what about the anterior column? I mean, if it's a community fracture, I think a very reasonable strategy, for example, is to do cement augmentation at that level uh, to, to restore the anterior column. And then maybe one level above and one below fixation. And to be honest, in some patients, I think that's a stronger construct than going two or three levels above and below and still having the problem that you mentioned, which is the anterior column. And that kind of illustrates how the whole paradigm about uh, surgery or, or not surgery is a little bit misleading and, and even challenging to evaluate in a, in a scientific fashion, because what surgery are we talking about? I think there's a it, surgery is a broad spectrum, and you can start in the very aggressive spectrum of open posterior fusion with multi-level instrumentation. And then you can go to those variations of minimally invasive uh, screw fixation where you're not fusing, or you can combine minimally invasive with a cement augmentation or just a cement augmentation and then uh, the conservative treatment. So it's definitely a very interesting topic. And as much as we see so many patients with thoracolumbar fractures, sometimes when we start dividing in that many categories in terms of not only um, the variables related to the fracture itself, to the age, comorbidities, uh, but also regarding the, the type of surgical treatment, uh, you ended up with a relatively low number, uh, which renders the power of your studies probably suboptimal to detect a meaningful difference. Uh, I don't know what are your thoughts about that. I think that's a very valid criticism. Uh, we did not have huge numbers. Uh, we are a level one trauma center that takes from most of our state, but we're still not a huge place. Uh, it'd be wonderful to design the studies of our dreams. Um, but this was a case of, I think I can show something very interesting that will uh, make people stop and think about the validity of the pathways we're using. And I guess my main thing is, you know, I'm still feeling like Denise, the best system that I have. And then you just modify that and you'd say, of concern is such and such. And I'll say that in my report and we discuss that in our weekly meetings. Um, but have we gone past that, no matter how many numbers you have and how granular AO is, are we still any better than Denise? And I think whenever you're doing scientific research, there's clearly a, tra a trade-off between um, the 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 the, the, the amount of variables that you're trying to analyze and the impact of your results. And by that, I say, I mean, if you try to do even a retrospective study, uh, let alone a trial, uh, evaluating 10 radiographic outcomes plus clinical outcomes, including ODI, VAS, quality of life, plus long-term economic impact and who knows what, I mean, you ended up with something that it's almost impossible to, uh, to finish and even your results, because you're analyzing multiple various variables, you're susceptible to have some spurious uh, results. So I like your approach of focusing. I mean, you you chose a variable that was very meaningful and we know impact clinical outcomes, which is kyphotic deformity. And you decided to study uh, within your available resources um, through a retrospective analysis, the ability of those classification systems. And that's why, I mean, at one point here, we're discussing about um, studying the, the the topic of thoracolumbar fractures, but my proposal to the team was very simple. I said, I specifically want to see those patients with 
burst fractures. And uh, we're planning a randomized trial um, to do those that the surgeon thought that they were non-operative to begin with. I said, okay, uh, instead of just doing a brace, we're going to randomize to brace or to kyphoplasty. And then I want to analyze kyphotic deformity and maybe outcomes in six months or a year. And that's it. And I think that's the way of somewhat contributing to the literature without trying to develop a whole new classification system, which will take five years to validate in terms of the uh, inter-observer reliability um, and everything. And I don't know if you agree. I mean, I see the future of more as focusing on, I mean, more as we've been aware of some of the limitations of the classification system we use and use their principles rather than blindly just applying the number and say, this patient needs to go to the OR tomorrow, um, rather than trying to you know, develop a new system. I, I'm not opposed to that, but I think the T-Leaks really kind of set up uh, a hallmark, which will be hard to to, uh, I mean, I think it, it will stay a long time with us. And I think it's a very good system. Um, and I don't know if you think, what are the directions for the future, like in terms of the scientific progress of our understanding of thoracolumbar fractures, specifically in terms of classifying them? What do you see coming up in the next 10 or 20 years? I would, I would like to see us, quite honestly, go back to the knee and then add red flags. These are red flags that increase risk of poor outcomes and raise and lower the threshold for surgery. Um, uh, it, because I think if we do that, that gives the surgeons some guidelines without giving uh, too complex uh, systems uh, to evaluate things. I also want people to uh, really not exclude the patients that have several adjacent segments involved, because I think that's an important thing and they're often excluded from studies. Um, but uh, I'm a little concerned about the augmentation in that it would be nice to have five-year follow-up because the, um, the stiffness of the augmentation is different from native stiffness to so make sure that we don't get into problems later on because of that. That may be a separate study that you would need to do. For sure. And, and in that sense, I mean, uh, I've, we've used methyl methacrylate as the standard for cement augmentation, uh, but there are some new polymers that came into the market more recently. And the young modulus, modulus of that is much closer to that of the natural bone than the, the, the cement. And I always tell my residents, when we're doing cement augmentation, my goal is to try to get the cement to intermingle with those fracture fragments but I don't want to get more than five cc's of cement um, because we know, at least in the osteoporotic population, that that meaningfully increase the, the axial load upon the adjacent level. And especially if you have a small amount extravasating to the disc, then you may be running uh, into significant problems in terms of um, not only adjacent segment disease or the disease of that specific disc above the cement augmentation, but even an inferior end plate fracture of the vertebra above. Like I said, I think this is a more meaningful problem when we're discussing the main indication of kyphoplasty, which is in the osteoporotic population. I personally has, have never seen an adjacent level fracture in a young patient with a traumatic injury for whom I've done cement augmentation. Um, but But I do think your point is very valid in terms of um, 
comparing the long, the, the short-term benefits of cement augmentation, which we know are very meaningful. You, you do the kyphoplasty, the 70, 80% of the pain, pain goes away. You remove the brace, goodbye. The patient's doing great, back to work. But what are the long-term effects in terms of the overall health of the spine of that treatment that, that we're doing? Uh, what do you think are the main takeaways of your study? I mean, how how would you like our listeners to approach your results, and what are the how would you like them to to think about the future based on on the on the results that that you got with this study? The one thing that we haven't discussed that I wanted to bring up is the change from the supine imaging to the upright imaging. And that's something that's always been done by the surgeons where I practice. And I was surprised when I looked back to find out that actually hasn't been validated either as a prognostic thing. But certainly everyone, we should be comparing the degree of kyphosis on the supine MR or CT to the degree of kyphosis on the upright exam and see if that can be used as a predictor of instability and likelihood to progress more. So that's something I'd like to see done in the future. But in the meantime, I'd like for people to think uh, more about what's happening with that ALL um, and uh, what's happening when we have several adjacent levels. And no classification system can really capture the complexity of what happens with these spine fractures, especially high velocity. So I like the idea of keeping it to a simple classification system like Denis and then having red flags that you add that will raise your concern and lower your threshold for surgical intervention. So let's discuss first the, the, the difference between the kyphotic, the, the, the focal kyphosis um, comparing uprights with the supine uh, imaging, because I see that in my practice a lot, but as you mentioned, I'm not aware of a study that tells that uh, maybe a five degree or a 10 degree change should trigger a surgical intervention. So it's something that I always have in mind and I tell my patients, I mean, we get the MRI or CT scan, we see how it looks in CT scan and, and based on that, we may decide, okay, this patient goes for a brace. I want an upright x-rays with the brace before the patient is discharged. First, because I don't want to see this patient three weeks or, or six weeks with a new x-rays and say, oh, there's a new kyphotic deformity. And maybe it, was, it would already have been there anyway, even in the immediate uh, uh, setting. And, and I can tell that in my practice, at least 60 or 70% of the patients, even with superior and plate fractures, when I compare the upright X-rays with a brace with the supine MRI, I see a difference of at least some five degrees. So I already see some of the collapse. Uh, personally, I don't know how meaningful that is. I've seen there, there's been a few patients that that difference is so marked that especially if the patient is still in pain with the brace, I've offered a kyphoplasty. Uh, but, that, but as you mentioned, I think the literature supporting that and any decision-making based on the difference between supine and uprights is still very um, undeveloped and, and we still need to study more of that. So, I, I, But I do think it's a very meaningful topic. And the other one you mentioned, I think it's regarding the adjacent fractures. Uh, I do think that we, are, we as surgeons, we always take that into account. I mean, one thing is to have a superior plate fracture. It's a completely different animal to have a burst fracture, which seems non-operative, and three more superior plate fractures on top of that. And lo and behold, those affect the thoracolumbar transition, which is there. You're more, more, you're most concerned regarding developing kyphotic deformity because those are the patients that are going to have a meaningful, meaningful sagittal imbalance. If 
one of those fractures or all of them actually uh, develop some degree of kyphosis. And I agree with you. I think none of the classifications so far have taken account uh, the presence of multiple level fractures, uh, but that's something that, that, that at least from the clinical standpoint, it's something uh, we're always uh, taking into account. And the last thing you mentioned about the ALL, I found it very interesting, your focus on that, because I've always paid attention on the ALL in two situations. One is in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, because those patients, sometimes you have just a small lamina fracture, and usually it's not an ALL disruption. It's a fracture of an osteophyte. But those patients, I still go back to the old Dennis classification and say, this is a three-column injury that I treat as a long bone fracture. And I tell my residents, one thing is to have a fracture of a vertebra when the other segments are mobile. This patient, it's almost, you have to think as if you had a femur above and a femur below. And the only place where there's motion is between those two long bones. So we know those fractures, even though they may look stable, they, if you have that disruption of what was the ALL and now it's uh, it's a big osteophyte, uh, it's meaningful. And the other place I've paid a lot of attention, uh, it's in the cervical spine because sometimes that ALL disruption means a disc disruption. And I've seen patients that I saw just some small stir changes around the ALL and the interior portion of the disc. And when we did the surgery, you look at that and that disc is completely gone. And, and you know that patient is stable. Uh, but I've not paid that much attention in the thoracolumbar spine. So, I mean, if you want to tell me a little bit about your experience of evaluating the ALL and trying to predict some degree of instability related to the ALL disruption, uh, I'll be very interested in that. Oh, great. So there are two different ways, of course, we're going to injure the ALL. What you've been describing is the hyperextension injury. And in the ankylosing spondylitis or DISH patients, we like to call it a carrot stick factor, which is the same as your idea, just different words. And yes, a very significant injury. But I'm thinking and these more about the compression injury to the anterior longitudinal ligament. So it's sloshed. And when it's squashed and we have abnormal signal in it, I think it's no longer acting as a helpful strut there in the front. So very different from the hyperextension injury. I'm saying I think the ALL is also important in axial load injuries, both compression and burst. And then when we look carefully at it and we see it's disrupted, that's something that might make you more likely to say this patient is at risk for kyphotic deformity. It did increase the risk of kyphotic deformity in our series. So you're saying that the ALL, because I always thought the ALL is a very strong ligamentous structure uh, that prevent hyperextension, but you're saying that if you have disruption of the, 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 the vertebral body, which is the main component of the anterior column, and an ALL disruption, then that's when the ALL disruption is really meaningful? Is that your thought process? Well, I, think, I think they're both meaningful. Certainly the hyperextension is very meaningful. But when you've compressed an anterior vertebral body and you've also disrupted the ALL, perhaps it indicates there's been a higher velocity or something. Uh, is it the ALL itself or is it because it's a more severe vertebral uh, injury? I can't say, but I'm saying that there is an association with that compression sprain of the ALL and development of further kyphotic deformity. Whether it's a secondary phenomenon or a primary phenomenon, it still matters. Because when I've seen the ALL and it worried me the most in thoracolumbar fractures, I think it's when it crosses the disc space. I've seen some patients that I was planning to stop short uh, my instrumentation and then I saw the LL disruption crosses the disc space below. And that's when I thought, 
in the past that maybe that this space is compromised and I should go one level um, below. But so do you think the LL integrity, and it's hard to say, I mean, there's no meaningful study on that, but do you think it's mainly the LL anterior to the, the vertebral body, which is meaningful, or that the portion of the LL that crosses the, this space? Where I see the uh, sprain and failure tends to be at the fracture. So it's a fracture that involves that ALL. Uh, the ALL is not completely disrupted. There's not a line of high signal across it, but it's amorphous. It has increased signal. It's often a bit redundant. So I think the fracture involving the ALL is what's important. As I say, I, I can't say exactly what it is. I just say there's an association. And when I see that, I'm concerned that there's going to be a higher risk of kyphosis. And, and I think that's a very meaningful um, insight that I'll definitely take into account uh, in my practice because I've, the main factor that I've, I've, I've evaluated in the past to indicate a vertebral augmentation has been, I mean, the age of the patient, how active the patient is. I mean, if the patient is a polytrauma and it's femoral fractures and they're not going to move for four or six weeks, which then, you know, I think the brace can do the job and the degree of comminution. But I, I have to admit that I've never paid attention to the integrity of the ALL. So, I mean, I think if you're designing further studies to evaluate um, comminuted burst fractures and trying to evaluate possibly, trying to compare maybe conservative treatment with a brace uh, with kyphoplasty, I think the evaluating the integrity of the LL uh, may be a very meaningful variable. So thank you for bringing that up to us. Um, anything else that we've not discussed and you'd like to point out? Uh, I see you have a very extensive experience with thoracomar fractures, and I, I thank you for your efforts in terms of uh, performing this study and then bringing some of um, the caveats of the current classifications to our attention. So anything else you would like our listeners to uh, focus on? Um, well, I, what I was just thinking about before you asked that was what's my next study going to be? So maybe can I answer that question? Yeah, my next, please. My, my next study is going to be only burst fractures. And my next study is going to be um, evaluating the degree of comminution, the number of pieces involving that anterior cortex and the ALL, and also the supine versus upright uh, evaluation. Because to my surprise, that had never been done. But I guess what I want the listeners to concentrate on is uh, not uh, being seduced by classification systems. Sometimes I think of it as a radiologist that classif making classification systems is the disease of the orthopedic surgeon. Um, they feel better if they have a classification system. And sometimes it is more holistic than that. And there are more factors than you can capture in that. Um, and which is why I like my idea of a simple system plus red flags. Sure. And I think, I mean, I'm not against classification system. I, I think we need to establish a common language that's best, especially in the academic setting and for scientific purpose. Um, we need to, to, to have that clearly established. And that's why the AO classification, even though it had no meaningful impact upon the decision making, making it created a general language where we could kind of organize our thought process and think about uh, compression fracture, distraction injury, translational injury. So I think they're valuable, but I completely agree with you. I mean, if my residents are applying, blindly applying the TLEX classification, say, hey, Dr. Matei, this patient needs to go to the OR uh, because it's a TLEX 5, or this patient, I'm doing a brace today, and please just check the uprights tomorrow because it's a, it's a TLEX 3. 
I think you may have a problem on that because more than ignoring the classification system, I think the the the, the wisest approach would be to, I mean, use the classification system. I mean, document that but have a, a very critical mindset in terms of the possible limitations of the classification system. And that's how we ended up uh, during my fellowship publishing that paper on the burst fracture. Um, uh, one of the attendings that was mentoring me at that time, he said, Tobias, I've seen so many of these non-operative TLIX2 with comminuted burst fracture, then three months down the road, I'm doing a huge surgery to uh, with a circumferential fusion that I don't like this classification. And I was trying to say, okay, I mean, this is this may be a small caveat of the classification. I mean, the classification as a whole is much broader than just the comminuted burst fractures. Uh, but at that time, when I look at the literature, I didn't find anything highlighting that point. So I thought um, it was meaningful. Uh, but I agree with you. I mean, I think we should look at these classifications um, with a very with very critical eyes and, and take the general framework that they gives us, um, but also develop, especially with experience, you develop some of these um, red flags that for patients that are borderline that you think, you know, I've 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 been in trouble before because I ignore this specific, let's say, ALL injury in this subset of patients. So even though there's no strong literature supporting that, I have to at least disclose that to the patient and discuss the option of perhaps being a little bit more aggressive here or even offering maybe a percutaneous fixation um, instead of, of just a brace. Um, but I do think that um, having that open mindset um, especially for for those cases there there are borderline cases i can tell you as surgeons we're very good uh, at the margins i mean we're good even without classification system to see a patient with a, a burst fracture posterior ligamentous injury a translational injury a patient that we need to say this patient goes to the or oh what's the t-leaks and my residents could really tell Dr. Matei, we don't care about that. I mean, let's be reasonable. This patient goes to the OR because he has a neurological deficit and the fracture is unstable and no one has any questions about that. And at the same time, we're all familiar with superior and plate fractures um, that you know barely affect 10%, the stir changes barely affect 10% of the superior and plate. We know that we don't need a classification system to tell us that that's a non-operative case, but what I think it's is the holy grail um, of how the classifications can impact our decision making are those borderline cases. I mean, those that the TLIC says it's a surgeon's choice, or those like I mentioned, the comminuted bursts that they say it's non-operative, and maybe not all of them, but at least a substantial proportion of patients should have surgery considered as a possible therapeutic option. So, and that's why I'm very thankful for your focus approach in terms of kyphotic deformity. And I think that's the best way to do science sometimes. You may not provide a comprehensive answer, but as long as you provide a very meaningful answer to a specific topic, topic that has been not has not been analyzed properly before, I do think it's a meaningful contribution to the literature. And I do think all our readers and listeners would benefit from, from reading this great work that you publish with NASJ. So uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for considering NASJ um, as the, the periodical uh, to publish your paper. And we look forward to seeing more uh, studies from your group. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a fun discussion. I think we have an awful lot in common on the things we're working for it, on. So I'm looking forward to hearing more from you as well. 